Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I've had a very productive session with the UN Security Council on the extremely disturbing humanitarian situation that we have in Afghanistan right now. Uh, my main message to them was very simple. Now is not the time to turn away. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Mudirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. We're going to talk again today about Afghanistan. We're going to talk about the risk of famine many Afghans are facing over the coming winter. We're going to talk about why Western capitals, especially Washington, shoulder much of the blame for that. We're also going to look at what they can do about it. Much of the world is facing a stark choice with Afghanistan. Accept the country's new Taliban leaders or continue shutting them out. The group's been barred from accessing the Afghan central bank's foreign assets worth $10 billion. And humanitarian aid has stopped. The United Nations says half of the population of Afghanistan is suffering from extreme hunger. The UN's World Food Programme is warning that the crisis is deepening by the day. Officials fear millions of Afghans will be forced to choose between migration and starvation this winter. Since the Taliban seized power in Afghanistan in mid-August, the world has responded by freezing state assets, cutting aid, and offering only limited sanctions relief for humanitarian purposes. Afghans face an increasingly dire situation. Government employees lack salaries, basic services have collapsed, and the financial sector is paralyzed. The economy is in free fall. As we heard, the UN estimates that more than half of the population faces acute hunger. Already more than 3 million children are malnourished. The UN warns that millions of Afghans are now on the brink of famine. It's been a month since the Taliban banned girls from secondary schools across most of Afghanistan and women, except for those in the public health sector, haven't been allowed to return to work. The fear is they're being treated once again as second-class citizens under a hardline Taliban regime. It's true that the Taliban, since seizing power, has shown little sign of compromise or done much that appeals to donors. They've limited girls' education, stopped many women working, nominated an all-male, mostly Taliban government. The European Union has set out conditions under which it would recognise the Taliban government and allow more aid in. Some of those conditions relate to women's and girls' rights, others to greater political inclusion. The EU also appears to be looking for ways to give more than just humanitarian aid. But it's the US that really matters, and thus far Washington doesn't seem to be budging. The opening clip you heard was UN envoy Deborah Lyons appealing to the world not to turn its back on Afghans. But as winter sets in, temperatures fall and snows deepen, it looks like that's exactly what's happening. Today we're talking to Graham Smith, who's been working on Afghanistan for many years, including for Crisis Group. Graham's the lead author of a report we have coming out over the next couple of weeks with some ideas about how the world should respond to the looming humanitarian catastrophe. Graham, welcome back on. Thanks for having me. So, Graham, to, to start, could you just tell us a little bit about sort of what's happening now in Afghanistan? I'm sure some of our listeners will have seen these pictures of malnourished Afghan children, uh, we'll have been following stories of, of food shortages as the winter approaches. 
But how bad are things there? The UN Secretary General has said that uh, Afghanistan is uh, tipping into humanitarian disaster on a scale unlike anything else uh, on the planet Earth, that Afghanistan could very soon be the worst humanitarian disaster in the world. Uh, I think uh, next month it will become official in a sense because uh, you will see uh, the United Nations make an appeal for funding that will be bigger than any other humanitarian appeal um, with more than 23 million people on the brink of starvation. It's not yet a famine. It can actually get worse, but uh, there's a huge number of hungry people in Afghanistan who need help. And normally that help uh, would be provided by uh, international donors and by the state, uh, which has a responsibility to take care of its citizens. And right now what we're seeing in the wake of the Taliban's 15th of August takeover of the country is something that sort of resembles a state collapse. Not all salaries are being paid in all ministries. People are just physically not showing up to work. There is a, a devaluation of the currency, which is not as bad as it could be, but still it's sliding. Imports are not there in the bazaars. There's a real economic devastation that's, uh, that's happening across the country at the moment. And can you tell us a little bit about why has this happened? How has this come about? The most proximate cause of the uh, economic collapse and the ensuing humanitarian crisis is essentially the chokehold that has been imposed by the outside world on Afghanistan after the Taliban took over the country. There are a whole series of decisions in uh, capitals around the world, primarily Western capitals, primarily, to be honest with you, in, in the United States deciding on how uh, sanctions will apply in Afghanistan, deciding uh, what kind of humanitarian aid can be delivered, and deciding on you know, what kind of interactions the outside world will have with this terribly impoverished country. And that whole series of uh, fateful decisions in Western capitals means that even though we have witnessed uh, the end of the world's deadliest conflict in Afghanistan, you know, it was a a terrible war that was killing, you know, upwards of 30,000 or 40,000 people a year, displacing hundreds of thousands of people from their homes every year. In some ways, the, the devastation after the war could be worse than the devastation of the war itself. You could see uh, more people dying as a result of this economic collapse than dying as a result of all the, you know, bullets and bombs that have been inflicted on the people over the years. And Graham, just we'll talk about policy and Western capitals uh, in a moment. But could you just sort of describe a little bit, if you're, let's say, in 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 Kabul, or you know, if you're in in the countryside? I mean, what what is it? What is this economic collapse and the food shortages and the price hikes? You know, what does that all look like? What concretely does it mean you're you're able to do and not able to do? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a good question because these things can seem really abstract if you tell people that you know, more than 40% of a country's GDP was being provided by international donors. Or if you tell them that 75% of the state budget was being paid for by international donors, those sound like big numbers, but you don't really have anything to compare it to. Nowadays, in the markets, uh, walking down the street, you can see people selling their possessions because um, they can't get any any money to eat. And so they're just selling, you know, tables and chairs and dressers and televisions and wherever they can get their hands on. Um, and then where you do see big crowds are often uh, outside of bank branches because uh, the Taliban have put strict limits on withdrawals to prevent a collapse of the currency. Um, initially, it was $200 a week and then it was 400 That's sort of an abstract thing. Uh, the, the rules don't matter if you can't physically get to a bank so people have been queuing up and sleeping outside just for the chance to to make a withdrawal and get their hands on some cash. And Graham, there seems to be, like you said, a, a narrative around the complexity of the situation that faces Afghanistan today. And a lot of that narrative is about the idea that somehow the, the causality here is very complicated. So before we get into the role of of the U.S. and other donors, can you tell us 
Uh, how much of this is related to the Taliban's own policies and approach to managing the economy? You know, in the course of, of writing this uh, forthcoming report for Crisis Group about the humanitarian crisis and economic collapse, I, I had a whole section in the report that was titled Taliban Mismanagement uh, because it initially appeared that a lot of the things that were going wrong with the Afghan economy um, were a result of, of stupid things that the Taliban had done when they took over. And that was initially our suspicion in part because the Taliban did not appoint any technocrats with a history of running a modern economy. I mean, the, the people they put in charge of places like the Central Bank or the Ministry of Finance, these are people whose resumes uh, are better known for money laundering, really, rather than uh, for any sort of um, stewardship of a modern economy. And so we sort of assumed that um, that they would be making a lot of mistakes. But then as I have written this uh, report over the course of the last couple of months, we actually renamed that section just Taliban Responses because mismanagement is not the biggest thing that is happening here. I'm not saying the Taliban have been excellent uh, economic managers uh, in their few short months in power. It's just that the economists that we've been talking to have said, look, the Taliban were not dealt a very good hand here. They took over institutions that were effectively bankrupt. Um, when they walked into the central bank, um, you know, there were not huge cash reserves on hand. Uh, most of the, the bank's reserves were held um, by the U.S. Federal Reserve in New York. And, uh, you know, they had, by their own estimation, um, half a million civil servants who needed to receive salaries. Um, and hadn't been paid in months. Uh, and so they did uh, what had already uh, started, actually, in the final weeks of the former uh, government. Um, they continued with currency controls, basically to prevent a, a rapid devaluation of their own currency. They limited the amount of money that you can withdraw from banks. And they tried to encourage people to use the Afghani, the local currency, rather than uh, U.S. dollars, uh, even though the economy had been heavily dollarized uh, during the years of, of U.S. presence in the country. And have the Taliban tried to urge um, donors to change their policies and to work with them? You know, the, the, the Taliban's relationships with um, uh, the outside world have been uh, have been strained. I mean, they uh, were engaged in a peace process where they had been telling everybody that they were interested in a negotiated settlement to the war. And then they advanced on Kabul and took the whole thing by military force. And so those conversations uh, with uh, diplomats, some of those relationships have been really tested um, over the course of the last uh, half year or so. And so... Uh, the Taliban have reached out and tried to uh, solicit help from the outside world. Um, but even as they appeal for money, you know, they haven't really done a lot to make themselves appealing to foreign donors. They, you know, just in recent days uh, issued a directive on uh, control of the media. Um, they've been beating protesters in the streets they, um, in many provinces, uh, forbade girls from attending secondary school, although they're now negotiating with the United Nations uh, and UN officials are hopeful that they can get girls in secondary school in, in more provinces. But, you know, the long and the short of it is um, that uh, the Taliban haven't um, endeared themselves to the international donors to whom they're now appealing. I mean, Graham, just to push on that, it's not just that they haven't endeared themselves, right? I mean, it's it's almost that they've done the, the polar opposite uh, uh, of what they, they might have done had they been trying to win an international audience. As you say, they've, they've closed the girls' schools, even though some of those are opening. They appointed a cabinet, not just that was sort of predominantly Taliban, didn't include any other factions, but also that included some people that the, the US, that the UN and others have designated as terrorists, the leaders of the Takani network. Do you, want to, do you want to just sort of say a word about sort of what the the leadership's calculations in sort of those decisions are i mean it's 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 mostly that they seem to have to have pandered mostly to their own supporters since they've assumed power right yeah that's exactly right i mean i i think it's worth remembering that 
the Taliban had different lines of effort running in parallel uh, in recent years. Uh, they had a group of Taliban diplomats in Doha uh, who were trying to obtain what they hoped would be the lion's share of power, but not an exclusive uh, um, you know, share of power uh, in Kabul uh, through negotiations. Um, they were standing there giving media interviews to the world saying, we control about 70% of the country and we want 70% of the power. I think they, they thought that they could get a commanding part of the, of the setup in Kabul uh, through talks with their enemies. But that group of Taliban failed. Um, they ultimately were sitting in Doha watching from the sidelines as uh, the military uh, aspects of the Taliban uh, simply defeated their enemies on the battlefield. And so diplomacy failed. And those aims of creating a government that included multiple factions uh, sort of died on the 15th of August, uh, along with the Republic. Uh, and so what you see now is exactly what you say, is, is the Taliban setting up uh, a sort of a victor's government. It has... Uh, some token inclusion of non-Pashtun ethnicities. And so you're seeing gestures towards what the Taliban would describe as inclusivity. But I think it's not what a lot of uh, rival political factions in the country would call inclusivity. And it's certainly not what women would call inclusivity because there are absolutely no women in the cabinet. And you think sort of uh, overriding these calculations is the imperative of, of keeping the movement together, of rewarding, you know, fighters who've been, who've been battling for two decades for the Emirate? Yeah, that's right. The, the Taliban have always prized their internal cohesion. And despite all these reports about uh, Taliban factionalism, even through this uh, turbulent time uh, that we've seen recently where they effectively uh, gained control of an entire country, we have not seen large numbers of firefights between Taliban factions. That is a partly a result of the political decisions they've made. As they took power, they apportioned um, jobs, they apportioned any goodies they had to hand out to their own followers and not to the people who they just defeated. And is there any way to assess sort of how much space leaders have to be more accommodating to what donors want before that cohesion's tested? I mean, only the Taliban know, um, you know, what's best for the Taliban's own internal cohesion. It's going to be uh, a long, cold winter. Uh, a bunch of Taliban have been essentially garrisoned in unfamiliar urban spaces. We're talking about a primarily rural insurgency, young fighters who have known nothing but war their entire lives. They don't know how to live in a city, many of them. And they are literally begging uh, sometimes. I know a business owner who said that the Taliban were uh, forcing him to provide food for the fighters, but the fighters were embarrassed to ask for uh, any hot meals. And so they were settling for tea and, and bread. But it gives you a sense of the desperation amongst some of the kind of frontline Taliban as they adjust to peace. And uh, yeah, I think that really will uh, test the cohesion of the Taliban internally. And so when donors are coming and asking the Taliban uh, for compromises, that's the backdrop. That's one of the reasons why you're seeing so much stubbornness, I think, from the Taliban. And Graham, in, a, in the forthcoming report, you refer to the U.S. as a gatekeeper on this question of the economy. Can you tell us more about that gatekeeping role and how it works? Sure. Um, America remains the dominant arbiter of Afghanistan's economic relationship with the outside world. Even though American troops have now fully withdrawn from Afghanistan, America still has a whole lot of leverage that primarily takes three forms. Uh, it's mostly about asset freezes, number one, sanctions, number two, and number three, more generally, but no less importantly, uh, U.S. influence in multilateral institutions. On the first, asset freezes, uh, the lion's share of the, we think it's about $9.4 billion uh, that belonged to the, the central bank of Afghanistan. Uh, most of that, we believe, is held in the uh, U.S. Federal Reserve in New York. 
a little bit maybe in uh, European central banks. This money uh, is really, really important for the central bank to be able to just do its business. I mean, they were um, flying shipping pallets of U.S. dollars, crisp American bills, over to Kabul on a regular basis, something in the order of 45 million U.S. dollars a week, um, and holding currency auctions um, that allowed local currency traders in Kabul to take paper Afghanis and trade them for paper dollars. And it provided uh, really essential U.S. dollar liquidity to an economy that was importing 10 times as much as it exported. In other words, if you wanted to buy imported wheat flour or pretty much anything in the markets in Kabul, those transactions were cleared in, in U.S. dollars by importers based in Kabul. And so the cutoff of that supply of uh, U.S. dollar liquidity is absolutely devastating. And the central bank is essentially bankrupt now. Graham, can I just ask you quickly on the central bank resources before we move on to the sanctions? So if we can imagine a response being, well, but how could we expect that the U.S. government would fly in pallets of dollars that would immediately go into the hands of the Taliban? How should we think about these central bank resources? Whose resources are these? The central bank's uh, resources technically belonged to the Republic of Afghanistan, which no longer exists. Uh, the Islamic Republic dissolved itself when the president fled and the security forces fell apart. So as a legal entity, is there such a thing as the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan? It's a little bit unclear. If there is such a legal entity, is the is the central bank still an institution that should be considered to have signing authority? The, the, the legal status of the money is a bit unclear. But in practical terms, um, uh, the, the foreign donors that used to bankroll uh, the government feel a sense of ownership because, you know, the, the Americans and the Germans and the Brits and uh, everybody else who was a major donor to Afghanistan feels in some ways instinctively that that money is theirs. Because in practical terms, uh, you know, 75% of the state budget was being provided by foreign donors. And the problem, Graham, if I understand it, is not so much legal in terms of the money that was the, the sort of Afghan Central Bank's money. It, it's a political problem. I mean, politicians in the West, particularly in Washington, you know, they don't want to be seen uh, by their voters or by opposition politicians flying in, as, as Nas said, flying in crates of cash for the Taliban. Correct. I, I think there is a, a bit of a hangover after what happened to Obama and uh, and Iran. Nobody wants to see a, a wire agency photograph of pallets of U.S. dollars uh, shrink wrapped and being uh, delivered to the Taliban. The thing is, if U.S. dollars are the you know the main currency for doing business around the world, then Somehow the Taliban are going to need to get their hands on some U.S. dollars so that imports can happen. You know, there's simply the crops uh, in Afghanistan don't produce enough food for the humans in Afghanistan. They have to import food. And there is no, you know, world food program project in the world that can truck in enough food. They They, they have to be able to do their regular imports. There, there has to be some large-scale importation of, of calories into the country to keep people alive. And so uh, what you're seeing is these really desperate moves now um, where big Afghan businessmen are doing uh, deals with aid agencies, uh, so-called currency swaps. And I think you're going to see a lot more of this uh, in the coming weeks where um, if I'm an owner of, say, for example, a cell phone company in Kabul, all my customers are paying me with uh, Afghanis, local paper currency. I'm not putting that in the bank because I'm not stupid. I know the banks are frozen and paralyzed. So I'm keeping warehouses full of local currency. But I can't use that paper currency to make imports. Say I'm... I'm uh, uh, someone who, who imports wheat flour 
you know, I need uh, an account overseas that has U.S. dollars in it. And so what's happening is a U.N. agency will come up to uh, an Afghan businessman and say, hey, let's make a trade. Because we, the aid agency, we want to pay our staff. Uh, we want to pay our drivers. We want to do cash assistance to poor, hungry people in Afghanistan. And we need to get our hands on Afghanis. And because the banking sector is paralyzed, we have all this US, all these U.S. dollars sitting in these foreign accounts that we can't do anything with. And so these uh, Afghan businessmen are making trades uh, with uh, humanitarian agencies. And if that sounds madcap to you, it's because it is. It's a workaround. It is not a sustainable way to, to run um, foreign exchange, but that's what's happening. So tell us, how does this relate to sanctions? And, and what is the role of the U.S., not only with regards to the central bank, as we just discussed, but also in terms of uh, Taliban individuals who remain on designated lists and also this question of the broader UN sanctions on the Taliban? So the sanctions are multifaceted. Um, this is another issue where the path leads back to Washington, D.C. Nobody around the world wants to run afoul of U.S. sanctions. So there are a number of uh, sanctions regimes uh, maintained by the United Nations and the European Union and individual states. And they are all very important, but really the most important decisions are uh, happening in the Biden administration and the instructions that the Biden administration gives to the U.S. Treasury Department's uh, Office of Foreign Assets Control. OFAC issued two waivers in September saying that you can do humanitarian activities in Afghanistan. So it is legal um, you know, to send a, a plane load of food into the country. But that window is narrow and there are all kinds of things where either there's uncertainty still about how the U.S. regards these activities or really no uncertainty at all because it's clearly illegal that all kinds of categories of activities are, are very restricted. And you know, right now, for example, it's either certainly uh, the case or probable that things like sending development aid, so building a bridge. Things like paying overflight fees if you're an airline and you want to fly over Afghanistan. You know, things like just uh, importing spare parts for cell phone towers or um, you know, regular commercial activity with the, that touches the, the Taliban-controlled government in some ways can be construed as being illegal. Because, you know, if I want to drive a truckload of imported wheat flour and I pay customs to uh, a Taliban uh, controlled Gomruk, the, um, the, the the customs checkpoints, you know, that it goes up through the finance ministry into, into Taliban uh, general revenues. And is that legal or not? There's also, uh, importantly, uh, the UN Security Council needs to decide um, what kind of uh, sanctions will now apply. I mean, in some ways, these institutions can be forgiven for um, being a little hazy on this because as far as we know, it's never happened anywhere in the world that U.S. or U.N. listed terrorists take over an entire country. So legally, you know, it, we are in uncharted waters, but we do have to lay down some navigation guides very quickly, not just for the humanitarians who want to go and help Afghans, but just for um, the broader economy as a whole. So, Graham, that's the U.S. How do things look from Europe? The Americans have taken a very narrow view of what is humanitarian and what kinds of activities can be permitted in Afghanistan. Um, their line seems to be at the moment that not a single civil servant can receive a, a single dollar. The Europeans are cautiously moving towards a more expansive view. They've invented a phrase called humanitarian plus. No one really knows what the plus means, but it seems to encompass this idea that it's not enough just to send a little bit of aid to, for example, pay for doctors and nurses, that maybe also teachers should be receiving salaries. And, you know, teachers, of course, uh, work through the Ministry of Education. The main focus is reviving the education ministry, which is, you know, those are civil servants. In fact, it's the largest category of civil servants. The Germans and uh, some other European donors lean more heavily towards 
thinking in a, in a broader way about how are we going to keep the lights on? Yeah, actually, literally, how are we going to keep the lights on? I mean, Afghanistan was importing $280 million worth of electricity, mostly from Central Asia. And, you know, importing electricity is definitely not standard uh, humanitarian response. But I think the Germans and others have a concern that, um, you know, the number of people fleeing economic collapse is rising rapidly. The latest numbers we had from uh, one border point was 4,000 to 6,000 a day. Um, now, we don't know if that's going to continue through the winter. But, you know, you could be looking at very large numbers of people making a desperate crossing from Afghanistan through Iran, through Turkey, up into Europe. Uh, I mean, we'll come back to, to, to some of the uh, implications of what the current approach might be. But there's also, of course, Afghanistan's neighbours and, and countries in the, in the region, particularly China, Russia, Pakistan, Iran, uh, India to some degree. And some of them have been more willing to uh, at least give the Taliban some sort of legitimacy, recognise them as the de facto government, host them in meetings in their respective capitals. But what's the prospects of any of those countries sort of filling the, the Taliban's coffers in a way that could avert what looks set, as you said earlier, to be a looming humanitarian catastrophe over the winter? Regional actors have been trying to encourage the Western donors, the countries that had troops in Afghanistan, to pay the bill, calling for unfreezing of assets, calling for China, use the word pragmatic engagement uh, with the Taliban. Pakistan, the biggest uh, sponsor of the Taliban, has been calling for a, a pathway to legitimacy, you know, saying, look, we need to talk about the the steps that uh, the Taliban can take towards becoming a fully recognized government. There are some dissenters in the region. Tajikistan, notably, uh, no longer has an ambassador in Kabul. And I've been told that a rebel who is uh, trying to lead the so-called resistance uh, against uh, the Taliban, a guy named Ahmed Massoud, is a, a personal guest of the Tajik president in Tajikistan. And Graham, this is the son of Ahmed Shah Massoud, the famous commander of the, the anti-Taliban resistance in the 1990s. Correct, yeah. Uh, one of the most famous enemies of the Taliban. Uh, yeah, hosted now in, in Tajikistan with uh, some of his allies. India has been uncertain which way to go. Uh, for years and years, it, it backed uh, the republic, the former government, and it you know kind of refused to see the Taliban as anything except terrorists. Um, they came very belatedly around to the idea that they needed to talk to the Taliban, but then they did so in a very cautious way. Um, I'm told that um, there is currently no dialogue between uh, India and the Taliban. So India is still, I think, trying to figure out which way to go. But they have taken some, some very practical steps. Uh, uh, Delhi hosted uh, a regional conference recently um, that concluded with a call for greater humanitarian aid. Uh, probably the most dramatic turnaround has been uh, Uzbekistan, which for years uh, sponsored a, a northern strongman named Dostum, and uh, who was hostile to the Taliban. And then as it became clear that Dostum's forces were failing and that the Taliban were going to militarily capture uh, northern Afghanistan and come right up to the Uzbek border, um, Uzbekistan made a 180 reversal and sent delegations to Kabul, uh, promised cooperation, and that has included keeping the electrical supply uh, going. Graham, some have referred to the policy underlying the current approach as, as kind of a let them fail. Can you tell us about the reasons that underlie this approach? It is a hard emotional corner to turn for a lot of decision makers in the international community to turn around, accept the military victory of the Taliban and say, okay, we're going to do damage control here and we're going to work with the Taliban to deliver services. That's just not something that people are ready to do. Um, a lot of senior people in government still regard the Taliban as the enemy. And I have to say, like some of the arguments you hear from them 
deserve to be heard. Sometimes good reasons why you might want to stand back and watch the Taliban fail. The international community spent years warning the Taliban that you have to make peace. You have to negotiate your way into Kabul uh, because otherwise you will turn into the North Korea of South Asia. And, you know, the Taliban ignored those warnings. There's also uh, an argument that you sometimes hear about um, not wanting to inspire militant groups around the world. Crisis Group has done some uh, really interesting work in different hotspots, um, trying to take the temperature of, you know, just how much the Taliban's victory might inspire Islamist militants in other places. And I think the jury is still out on that. But you could see why, why the international community might want the Taliban to stumble out of the gate in their early months in power. There's also a, an argument about the global scarcity of aid dollars. I mean, Afghanistan was receiving some huge proportion of all of the money that was available in the world to lift people out of poverty. And the Taliban will now have to, in some ways, compete with sub-Saharan Africa and other places where Afghanistan will become just another poor country. And donors will be looking around the world at, at places where their, their dollars can go the furthest to help the most people. There is also an argument about um, the viability of the Taliban government. All of these arguments we're having now in the international community about how to um, deliver services under Taliban control will become meaningless if the Taliban lose control. And so um, there might be some donors who are sort of standing back and saying, look, you know, there's, there's nothing here to save. There, there are no institutions in Kabul that can be buttressed to a level of, uh, of durability. And so those arguments, there's some validity to them. But then, you know, I think you also have to consider the results. You know, there is not yet a famine uh, officially in Afghanistan, but there are tens of millions of people just on the brink of it. Another line of, of, of thinking in Western capitals is that it's sort of up to the Taliban to move first. Afghanistan needs the aid. Uh, people that under their rule uh, are, are starving, they should move on some of the things that donors want them to move on, whether that's girls' education, whether it's you know a government that's more representative of, of the whole country. But from everything you've said, it appears unlikely the Taliban is going to make those compromises. You know, I um, even just uh, last night was speaking with uh, senior UN officials who've been face to face with the Taliban in these meetings. Um, they they do see movement. You know, every day they're asking for something, and the Taliban are saying yes or saying no or saying maybe you know, let's do it later. But the uh, the movement is very much on a, a sort of day to day level, and it's certainly not. There have been no sort of grand symbolic gestures from the Taliban. And I don't think you're likely to. It's not a practical strategy to wait for the Taliban to become less Taliban. Um, the Taliban are the Taliban. You know, they've, they've remained a very, you know, cohesive and coherent political movement uh, for decades. Yeah, of course, they've evolved. But, you know, they're Taliban. And I don't think we can wish away their victory. They're not going to fundamentally change the structure of their cabinet to include people who are acceptable to the West. It would be nice for the Taliban to to make some bigger moves, to be more palatable to the outside world. But the starving people of Afghanistan cannot wait for uh, the Taliban government to pass muster with foreign capitals. That's It's just not going to work. And so we've sort of talk through the all the problems with the current approach and what's going to happen if, if things continue along this path over the coming months. What would a, a different course look like? I mean, what would be some of the things that, that uh, Washington in particular, but then other sort of Western capitals would do to, to, to stave off, you know, what, what looks to be terrible suffering over the, over the coming winter? After Thanksgiving, the uh, World Bank is holding a board meeting a decision on the table will be whether to release $1.5 billion in unspent money that's sitting in the Afghanistan Reconstruction Trust Fund. The uh, United States has uh, expressed some openness to uh, at least portions of that money being used for uh, health projects. 
the World Bank used to run something called Sahatlandi, which uh, kept about two thirds of the health facilities in the entire country running. Health facilities are simply not enough at this point. Um, if you fund the clinics, they are going to be overwhelmed by the medical needs of a starving population. And so I urge the board members of the World Bank to consider releasing that funding more broadly, including for food security programming that was already being done uh, by the World Bank in conjunction with three different uh, Afghan ministries. And yes, uh, that would involve working with the Taliban and giving some money to some of their civil servants. Doing so is currently not allowed by the United States and, and some other countries. The fact is that um, that money is urgently needed. And it's not just the question of the ARTF. The World Bank needs to get uh, more involved on the ground. Sanctions need to be eased yesterday. There is no point sending foreign aid to a country that you are impoverishing with sanctions. So there need to be additional uh, general licenses from OFAC for things like development aid, for regular commercial activity. There, uh, the ongoing discussions um, in New York uh, about uh, United Nations uh, sanctions easing have to be accelerated. And because uh, none of this is going to happen quickly enough, the United Nations is about to put out what's expected to be the largest appeal for humanitarian funding in the entire world. And so donors need to think about stepping up and funding that appeal when it comes. And maybe, Graham, just a last point on the policy. So in the in the report, we also talk a little bit about options for the finance sector. I mean, in particular, getting dollars that, you know, as you've described, uh, how, how necessary they are getting dollars into Afghanistan. And there's, there's sort of a number of different options for, for doing that, right? I mean, do you want to talk through those a little bit? Yeah, thanks for reminding me, because that's actually one of the most urgent necessities. The paralysis of the, of the banking se- sector worsens the, the economic situation dramatically requiring more and more humanitarian aid, there's really a need to uh, put in place this mechanism for uh, humanitarian currency swaps, some kind of a matchmaking system where Afghan businesses can sign up to buy uh, U.S. dollars and uh, humanitarians, aid agencies, uh, other actors can sign up to buy Afghanis and the World Food Program or somebody will get, uh, you know, cash in hand in Kabul and the, the businesses will get uh, U.S. currency in their accounts outside the country so they can make those vitally important uh, import deals. This is really a Band-Aid solution. And what's really needed is some entity to uh, take over the responsible uh, regulation of the banking and financial sector in Afghanistan. Right now, the central bank is hamstrung by sanctions and economic restrictions and so really cannot do that job in an effective way. There has been some discussion about sending foreign assistance to the Afghanistan bank, you know, offering foreign experts to uh, go and help the Taliban regulate the currency, run the central bank, would probably require some source of liquidity. I don't know where that would come from unless it was unfreezing tranches of uh, the foreign currency reserves or finding some other financing mechanism. And so in the meantime, while that remains politically blocked by the United States, there have been some really creative ideas offered by former U.S. Treasury officials who said, look, you could deputize AIB, Afghanistan International Bank, the sort of most respected private bank in Kabul, um, or another private bank or some consortium of private banks to act as a sort of private version of a central bank. And these are kind of cowboy solutions, but this is where we're at uh, in terms of the level of desperation because somebody has to provide uh, central banking services. So, Graham, obviously there's a, a very strong humanitarian imperative for Western officials to, to get aid in, to change policies so that more aid can get in. But there are other reasons too, right, why the current approach may well backfire on Western capitals themselves. I mean, if you're sitting down with Western officials, officials that are constrained by exactly the politics that we've talked about, deep opposition in their countries to be seen to help the Taliban, wh- what do you tell them? If you think it looked bad when... Thousands of desperate people were thronging around the airport as the last transport aircraft were were taking off with people clinging to the fuselages. You know, I can tell you it can look a lot worse. There is a public relations disaster here 
for the Biden administration and for other uh, rich Western countries if they turn their backs on Afghanistan and allow this to turn into a sea of human misery. So, yeah, I think this can get a lot worse and it is eminently preventable. I think what is clear is that uh, the volume of opium production will go up as the economy collapses. Cheap labor has always been a competitive advantage for uh, Afghanistan. And, um, you know, it's, it's something that has made Afghanistan the source of uh, more than 80% of the world's opium. Those same smuggling routes that have supplied uh, the dominant share of, of opiates have also started to supply methamphetamines uh, and other drugs. So, yeah, uh, I think you could see um, the supply of narcotics increasing dramatically. And what's also heartbreakingly clear is that tens of thousands of people are already fleeing. There's already pretty good monitoring uh, going on of the borders, something like 4,000 to 6,000 a day. Uh, leaving through Iran. Um, and so if you do the math on that, that's a very large number of people on the move um, heading towards Europe. Right now, um, you're not seeing them in Europe because the uh, snows are quite heavy in the mountains between uh, Iran and Turkey. But when the spring comes and those snows thaw, this could be another European migrant crisis. Graham, uh, a very bleak picture, but thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so, so much. So, Richard, what strikes you particularly about this rather devastating conversation we had with Graham and about the current policies of, of the U.S. and other Western governments? So uh, a podcast about war and crises rarely makes for very uplifting listening. Uh, but I got to say, I find this topic very, very tough. I don't know if you remember last time we talked about Afghanistan on the on the podcast. Uh, it was sort of just after this U.S. airstrike that killed an innocent family, including several children in Kabul. And that itself came after this very chaotic, poorly planned pullout of U.S. forces and sort of whatever you think of, of, of the U.S. pullout and whether it was the right decision. You know, that that just seemed like such a sort of ignominious end to, to, to U.S. involvement and this terrible sort of last act of, of the U.S.'s intervention. But, you know, it's just got much, much worse since then. And you now have Western policy, you know, pretty much responsible. And obviously we talked about the Taliban shouldering blame as well. But, you know, a lot of it is, is on Western policymakers. On, on one level, as, as Graham said, you do have this very difficult dilemma that donors face. The Taliban and the Taliban doesn't seem like they're going to compromise, at least not quickly. There's limits to how much they're, they're, they're going to change. And that does, in some ways, present a, a, a tough choice. You either work with the, with, the, with the Taliban for all their flaws, try to get them to change slowly. You do more than humanitarian aid. You put in other aid as well. You have to work through some of the, the ministries inevitably. Uh, you've got to get dollars in. And ideally, that means Biden releasing the central bank money. But if that's not possible, then maybe currency swaps managed by the UN or the World Bank, you ease some of the sanctions. And, you know, we sort of outline what that would look like in the report we got coming out. Now, we can't pretend that that's a, a, that's a good option. It's going to come with, with risks inevitably. But the alternative is to allow economic strangulation to drive the Afghan state into, into this messy collapse. It's even more dramatic impoverishment, potentially killing who knows how many tens, hundreds of thousands of, of Afghans over the winter. So to make the, the, the right call is going to take some political courage from the, the Biden administration at a time when you know, most top officials seem to just sort of want Afghanistan to go away. But as we heard from, you know, from the UN envoy up top, this is really not the time to abandon the Afghan people. I mean, and that applies especially to the US after waging a war there for 20 years. Yeah, Richard, I think it's terrible and I think it is also infuriating. And I think that the it's important to draw listeners' attention to this forthcoming report because I think it really lays out clearly the stakes of the kinds of decisions that policymakers in Washington and in European capitals and at the World Bank are going to be making in the coming weeks and months. 
And I, I was thinking during our discussion, having worked on issues of counterterrorism sanctions and aid for the last decade or so, I remember talking to a senior U.S. Treasury official during the famine in Somalia, where there were accusations that U.S. sanctions and Treasury regulations were contributing to starvation because of the um, limitations on aid. And I remember this person, she became incredibly emotional and she said, you know, I, I didn't take this job and I don't do this work in order to cause children to starve, but we're just implementing the policy that we have been instructed to carry out. And I think today, you know, this idea that there are bureaucrats and officials sitting in offices right now who will be making decisions that determine whether thousands of people starve to death, starting with young children, it's the reality. It is important to be honest that making the kinds of political decisions that you mentioned will mean that there will be benefits to the Taliban. It is true that it may be the case that the Taliban will in some ways be legitimized or strengthened by releasing of national assets, funds, and increased aid. But I think it is important that we say that that is the right thing to do and that the responsibility here is shared amongst the many governments that have been involved in Afghanistan for at least the last two decades. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, including on Afghanistan, on our website, crisisgroup.org. Look out for the report. It'll be up over the next couple of weeks on the website. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producer, Sam Mednick, and to Finn Johnson. And thanks, as ever, to all our listeners. Please do leave us a question or a comment. If you like the show, give us a positive rating or review, and we hope you'll all join us again next week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.